the letter U and the numeral 2. The four-man band features Adam Clayton on bass, Larry Mullen on drums, Dave Evans, nicknamed The Edge, on... This is bullshit. Nobody cares. These guys are from England, and who gives a shit? Oh, yeah. Just a lot of wasted names that don't mean diddly shit. This is differences of um, approach that they they brought to the music. With this band the uniqueness is there from the very first moment that they start playing. There's, there's something about their honesty as people and as musicians and their understanding of their own limitations as well. They build from strength and limitation and that's a very good um, principle. I haven't seen it in a band for a long time, and I'm sure that all the bands I've ever liked have done that. I believe the songs are already written, and I think the, the, the less you get in the way of them, the better. And when you take up that pen, you know, that's uh, the ballpoint or whatever it is, you start interfering nearly with the song. I don't know if that sounds too spiritual or not, but I feel a bit like that. I think we all bring different things to those sessions, we, but we all bring something. I tend to bring music ideas. Bono tends to bring music ideas and lyric ideas. Adam and Larry bring ideas of their own. Lines, drum lines, bass lines, approaches, you know. I mean, there's, there's four very active and creative minds at work all the time, you know, so I don't think anyone's interested in taking a back seat in this group. Everybody's interested in giving as much as they can. Part of the motivation for U2's music comes from the problems war-torn Northern Ireland, and the band feels that the rest of the world understands very little about the Irish character. From one hand, you have this picture of the Irishman roaming green hills with a shillelagh in his hand, you know, and his, uh, his eyes lost in the horizon. On the other hand, you have this picture of the Irishman with a petrol bomb in his hand climbing over barricades in the Falls Road in Belfast. You have a picture of a shillelagh in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> Top of the morning! <laughs> oh, yeah, shit. that's right. Yeah, right, totally. Welcome, welcome to CFX Cultural Futures Exchange, episode 13, The Unforgettable Fire. Um, as you might have guessed from the intro songs, this is about U2's uh, fourth album, The Unforgettable Fire. Uh, we'll get into all that shortly. To start off with, uh, I'm Jeff, and that's Slip. That's Slip, yeah. I just wanted to say, too, you know, looking at, you know, 
digging into these clips in YouTube and stuff, the one thing that really jumped out to me was uh, this is peak Bono mullet time. Oh yeah, uh, this is. And and one thing you know, we we talk about we could talk about how groundbreaking U two was and what the you know the fact that they were you know the biggest band in the world at one point and they were about you know unforgettable fire we'll talk about why that's interesting because it's right before that kind of happened or as it was happening but the other thing you know i was talking with my wife and i was wondering you know I, i'm sure someone's figured this out but how did this haircut that was such a new wave kind of uh you know counterculture haircut eventually become the rednecks haircut like, how did that happen? Huh. Right. Because because in the early 80s, the, the guys who were wearing mullets, you know, were like new, you know, new romantics like, uh, you know, obviously their hair was kind of poofy. And then in the mid 80s, it just became, you know, poofy on top, super long in the back, basically your basic mullet. And it was like an alternative hairstyle. And then eventually it becomes the hairstyle of redneck America. Of Joe Dirt or whatever. And. Could that could have, you know, you two being massively popular, Bono going to all these stadiums around the country, uh, you know, obviously being very Christian, you know, could that have had something to do with it transferring to the South? Like, I'm sure someone's done this, like figured this out, like they're, but, you know, but how maybe, that happened. Yeah, but maybe, uh, you know, you two's obsession with America, maybe they misappropriated the mullet from you know, rural <laughs> yeah. America. And, that's true. Know. That's true. I, I don't I but somehow I don't think so. It seems like the mullet is like it's kind of like a more of a in the in the in middle America. It was much later. Right. Like, I don't think in the early 80s, the red. Yeah, you, know, you could be right. You know, it could be it could be back and forth. I mean, obviously, this period is when we start to see that Americana start to surface. It's not as like war. And before, right, is not. I mean, we'll talk about this more. I'm. Just, I just wanted to mention the mullet because the mullet really jumped out at me on these clips. I, I was just like, yeah. "Holy shit, this is like insane!" Like Live Aid, that clip we played for Bad. I mean, his mullet is just magnificent. Yeah. You know, it's 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 so mulletrific. You know. Yeah. Really, well, it's the unfor unforgettable mullet is what what we have during this period. Well, and then adopted by such notables as Richard Marx and others. But uh, anyway. that's true. <laughs> that's true. Richard Marx, like maybe 87, 88 yeah. was, you know, rocking the Bono full, mullet. Full, full on. mullet. Yeah. yeah. And the most Atheridge, too. So uh, anyway, uh <laughs> so that was well the, the the femme mullet the kind of lesbian <laughs> mullet is a whole yeah. different thing that's oh, like yeah. that's like its own phenomenon too yeah um yeah we'll have to we'll have to examine some of those things so, it's true so as as you listener have guessed you know we couldn't help ourselves just you know you set us off we're going at it here talking about mullets but if you're new to cfx this is the show where we examine uh, different elements of cultural ephemera mullets music movies tv dive into the context and time that they came out, what's happened since, our take on the future valuation of these things uh, in the long term. Should you go long, buy, should you sell, go short or, or stay neutral? I think, you know, valuation wise, you know, the mullet is here to stay. So I think we, we can weigh in on the mullets as a hairstyle for uh, uh, U.S. Uh, citizens of more uh, rural density areas or, or beyond. So anyway, uh, welcome. Episode 13, as I mentioned, Unforgettable Fire. 
Um, let's get into talking about uh, this particular album and our personal histories around the band and the album time it came out. I'll let you uh, talk about your history with the mullet and also you too. So, so. <laughs> yeah, I never rocked a mullet. I uh, actually, I guess I have one now. If you look at our our icon, uh, yeah. but but at any rate, so yeah, for you two, I'm trying to think about the very first thing I heard from them, and I think it was Gloria. Uh, because, you know, obviously during this time in Los Angeles, there was a radio station called KROQ. We've talked Um, about that station before. Right. We've talked about it before. Uh, you know, we talked about Berlin and missing persons. Um, but KROQ was the first, uh, station in the United States to play U2, uh, without a doubt. There might've been some in the East coast that were early, but I'm pretty sure K-Rock introduced U2 to the United States and they were playing I Will Follow. I heard I Will Follow later though. The first time I heard the first time I heard you two, I believe, was either on MTV or a or a um, local LA video slash dance show called MV3, which I think we mentioned before too, which was hosted by Richard Blade, who was um, featured in our Berlin and Missing Persons episode. Also, he was a one of the most prominent DJs on um, K Rock, and you know many people out there will know him from Sirius XM. He's on First Wave. You know, he's like on all the time. You know, he's like this icon of this period uh, and was so instrumental in introducing some of this stuff. So I remember seeing Gloria and being quite impressed with it. You know, there was really nothing like it. Um, you know, it's this kind of anthemic uh, song that would characterize so much of what U2 is about, you know, and it's just with its weird Latin chorus. You know, it was just unlike anything else. It kind of stood out. And I think it kind of snuck up on people. Uh, but the thing that really got me into the band was when I saw New Year's Day, the video on MTV. Yep. I was so blown away by this video and by the guitar sound and by the singing and the melody uh, that I immediately, I was at my dad's because m- my mom, you know, my parents are divorced. My mom didn't have MTV yet, uh, but my dad had cable really early on and he had MTV. And so I was glued to MTV every time I went over to my dad's. I'd visit every other weekend. And uh, even though my dad lived near the beach, I didn't barely go to the beach at all. I was an indoor kid, just drinking Diet Cokes all day, just watching hours and hours of MTV. And um, when I saw New Year's Day for the first time, I immediately got on my bike and rode like uh, maybe five or six miles to this real hipster kind out of, of new breath, wave. probably at that yeah, point. out of breath. Uh, <laughs> new Wave record store and bought U2 War on cassette. And I wore the fuck out of that tape. It's still to my day, to this day, probably... It's between one or two albums, uh, uh, but it's probably my favorite studio album by U2 um, to this day. And I still listen to it. I still really like it. Um, And I was super into that. Uh, And uh, of course, the next big thing that came out for U2, the thing that really, uh, I mean, War was big. You know, War actually uh, made number 12. And, you know, we'll talk more about this in the history, but it was a, you know, almost a top 10 album in, in the United States. Um, and it broke them, but what really broke them was the Red Rocks video and album, you know, the EP, um, that, that kind of showed what they could do live. Um, they, uh, you know, it's a, it's an amazing concert and story on its own of how they, you know, kind of risk death to get up (laughs) to Red Rocks. We'll talk a little bit more about that, um, in Colorado. Um, and it's this iconic show, uh, where, they really, you know, Bono just shows what a charismatic front man he is, and the band just shows how good they were live. Um, and I think that's what really kind of put them over. 
And then, you know, of course, Unforgettable Fire was kind of came from left field. You know, you had these really anthemic songs on war. It's a rocking album. It's heavy. It's big. The drum sound is that big booming, almost like in the air tonight, uh, you know, um, kind of echo chamber production. And then you have, right. A lot of reverb. You have Red Rocks, which is anthemic. And then you have this subdued kind of dark Gothic album that comes out next. That's super experimental. That's super atmospheric and, you know, has moments of quiet and, um, you know, it's got its own kind of anthems, but they're almost different. They're kind of free-flowing and unstructured. And it really kind of, you know, obviously I heard Pride and that was much more like what had come before, you know, much more of an anthem. But these other songs were kind of mysterious and, um, you know, the Edge's use of effects and stuff is off the charts on this album. But you could really hear how Brian Eno kind of changed their sound. And I was into this record. Uh, you know, I wasn't as into it and I am not as into it to this day as War, but it it definitely had a special place for me. I remember this being kind of one of those records that I always associated with overcast days and winter and rain, you know, and it had this moody feel that would kind of bring you into it. And I that's the way I listened to it. It reminded me of other records of the time that had the same feeling to me, even though, the, you know, Dire Straits Love Over Gold was one of my favorite albums at the time. And it was like, another album that I just associated with that kind of weather and that kind of winter cold atmosphere that kind of had a mood to it. Yeah. And I still admire that to this day, the, the kind of mood this album sets, even though I have issues with it as we'll find. Um, so, you know, I was really into that, but what was interesting at this time, and I'm going to go off on a little bit of a weird tangent here. Uh, you know, the thing about you two was they were really popular where I grew up in Orange County. Um, and I think the reason is, is because Orange County, probably to this day, but especially at the time, was like Christian central. I mean, everybody was religious and there were born agains everywhere in my school. I mean, it was such a huge thing. Yikes. And even my swim coach was Christian. And, uh, you know, I was on the swim swim team and water polo team. And he was uh, devoutly kind of overtly Christian. He had he would have this buddy come over. This weird dude who was kind of, I still get creeped out by this whole thing. He was he was this friend of his who was part of his church, who was the most freckle-faced dude you ever saw. I mean, it was like, it was like freckles as a disease. It looked like measles. This yeah. guy had so many fucking freckles. He was such a weird looking dude. And he would come to and 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 kind of say, you know, hey, do you guys, you know, he would take a couple of us after swim practice and say, you guys want to go get a Coke at McDonald's? I want to talk to you about, you know. Uh, the Bible and stuff. And hmm. so he would take us to, I'm almost like some, some version of this was like did, involved did he, molestation. He did didn't he touch, touch us. Okay. He didn't touch us in the bad place. He didn't, uh, you know, perform any weird uh, rites on us. He would just take us to McDonald's. We'd get some Cokes and then he'd pull up these little pamphlets like just John 316 yeah. and read from uh, read to us. And this whole thing started us going, uh, you know, I started going to this Calgary church that was near my house that he was part of. And then he started a Bible study with a bunch of us. And every all my team was made up of these Christians. And one of the most Christian guys was this name, Guy Tony. He was an Italian guy. I don't remember his last name, uh, but he was he was devoutly Christian. And he was one of the guys in this Bible study I was in. And um, he basically... Uh, you know, t he um, uh, he had this band called Plato Party that was like uh, 
that was like uh, this Christian punk band. You know, they yeah. were kind of punk in quotes. It was much more like a post-punk like U2. And I remember they were all super into U2. Like U2 was the band that was okay to like yeah. um, by these guys. And, uh, and so I just remember like them and they would wear these kind of military jackets and they kind of looked like, you know, the Edge or Bono. You know, they had that same kind of hair. I don't think they had the big mullets, but they were, I just remember that being a huge part of, you know, my childhood is these, uh, yeah, there was no fucking separation between church and state at my school. Like the teachers were Christian. It was kind of creepy. Um, and I got pulled into that, yeah. um, you know, during that time. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that, uh, weird tangent because that was just such a part of, you know, you two was such a part of that whole time for me and the, and the weird Christian thing. Um, but, uh, obviously the next big thing that you two, uh, released was Joshua tree. And I bought that again on cassette right when it came out. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I loved it at the time. Uh, one of my friends went to see them live at the time. I'd ne I've never seen them live to this day, but that was when they were just selling out these arenas and they were kind of the biggest live band in the world at this point. Um, you know, I still like Joshua Tree. I don't really, it's not record I go back to as much as either Unforgettable Fire or War. I think I would kind of burn out on it, especially the first four songs are all the big hits. And um, Overplayed for Yeah, sure, I right? like a lot of the other album cuts more just because I'm not sick of them. But even then, it just doesn't have, you know, really, I've just, I, maybe it's just overplayed or something, but it's weird because, you know, uh, War, I, I've listened to tons of times too, and it doesn't have that same burnout for me. Obviously, Rattle and Hum came out after that, and I remember going to see that with, uh, you know, my roommate Evan and some other friends, his girlfriend and my friend Maureen, and I think we came out of um, all of us came out of that with the the same kind of reaction that a lot of people did was that we were kind of sick of this band and they'd kind of gotten too big and too, you know, this Americana thing that they'd started with Joshua Tree. It's just leaves yeah. a bad taste in my, you know, it's just, it's, it's I just can't deal with it. And um, all the covers, you know, with the Helter Skelter, one funny thing though is that when we walked out of the theater, you know, there's this, the way that Helter Skelter star, starts is Bono comes out and he says, Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. And Evan said, he's all, I want to form a band and cover that song just so I can go on stage and say, you too stole this song from Charles Manson. We're stealing <laughs> it back. It's one of the funniest jokes. But yeah, the whole thing with all the, you know, the B.B. Um, King duet and all that, it's excruciating even now. And then, oh God, the worst scene, Larry Mullen Jr., like at, at Elvis's grave. I mean, it's beyond Spinal Tap, you know, some of this stuff. And it do has not aged well, which is crazy because their next album would be totally different be a totally, you know, I, I, after, by the time Octung Baby came out, I actually was living in Japan and I would only get music, uh, mostly by people sending it to me. Like people like you would send me tapes and stuff and other people would send me tapes. And, um, it, but there wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of the music I would listen to, like the, you know, the kind of alternative stuff like Nirvana I was into at the time, it wasn't really there in Japan so much where I was. Cause I was kind of in a smaller town. Um, 
but they had these places where you could rent CDs just like you could rent videos. And I saw Octung Baby there and I was not, I didn't give a shit about U2. I'd heard the fly. I was pretty underwhelmed by it. But of course, Octung Baby is amazing. And I listened to it constantly. And it's still the other album, I think, that's a contender for war with my favorite. It's such a different direction they took. And even though, you know, the the whole kind of conceit of the kind of more industrial and dance stuff they were doing, it's just the song quality was so good. You know, it's every song is catchy. So I really liked yeah. Octung Baby at the time. And then Zoo Rope, I remember liking that too, because I liked how experimental they got. Um, after that though, uh, I kind of had a backlash and it was kind of part of that rap rattle and hum and then pop, you know, when pop came out, I just thought that was terrible. Um, I've never listened to the, you know, I started listening to all that you can, can't leave behind or whatever. And there's moments on there, but you know, a lot of people really love that album. I just, it's, you know, that and how to dismantle an atomic bomb and all the other ones. I just, I listen to them and I just think this is kind of, doesn't really do anything for me. So I think I kind of end at Zuropa really with you two. Um, but part of it was a backlash too. I remember, um, you know, we talked about the comic book hate when we talked about uh, Nirvana and there was a, 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 a issue in the nineties where buddy Bradley, the main character, he's an adult now and he goes out with this weird kind of nurse, you know, she's kind of like more, you know, she's kind of hot, but she's kind of more of a mainstream person. And he realizes she's kind of crazy and he doesn't really get along with her. But one thing she does that's really funny that that and his reaction that was really funny is she buys him concerts to you, too. And of course, he's like the snobby <laughs> rock critic. And he and it makes him throw up. He actually has to run in the bathroom <laughs> and throw up. And I thought that was kind of my reaction to them, too. And then the other thing is I started really getting into Thin Lizzy. And so every St. Patrick's Day, everyone would say, yo, we got to listen to you too. You know, they're the ultimate Irish band. And I'm like, fuck you guys. I want to listen to Emerald. You know, fuck you too. And I still like Thin Lizzy way yeah. more than you. They're one of my all-time favorite bands. Um, so too. so I yeah. kind of reacted against that whole, everybody, when they talk about Ireland, talks about you too. And we forget about this other amazing band that was around. So it was kind of a backlash. And now I've kind of come full circle and realized, you know, they're really great. You know, I like them. Um, and I especially like that, you know, War and uh, Blood Red's Under a Blood Red Sky, Octung Baby, and even this record as kind of mixed feelings I have as spotty as this record may be in some ways. I really like the atmosphere and I really admire how, you know, I will say this about you too. I love how they took risks, you know, and I think this album was a huge risk at the time as they were just ramping up with these anthemic songs and they just changed their sound completely, except for maybe Pride. Um, and it eventually, you know, and then Joshua Tree was even more of a different evolution. And then you get Octung Baby, which is the break from what they did. I love that they were taking chances and being experimental. So that's kind of where I sit with them today. Uh, that's my kind of history yeah. with them. Yeah, I, you know, at the time when War came out and this album came out, <clears throat> I wasn't really into the type of genre that you two was part of I as I've talked about in the past I really didn't really listen to K-Rock that much I heard certain songs that I liked and kind of we went into that on the um, Berlin and Missing Persons uh, episode as well um, but I had heard you two a little bit I might have heard like Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day I kind of liked it but I didn't really know much about you two maybe I didn't even know it was that was the band I had heard those songs didn't know anything about them 
But there was this uh, girl in, in junior high school who I kind of had a crush on and she's kind of a cool girl. And she had, a, you know, on those like denim blue notebooks that people had back in the day, she had, uh, you know, put U- a big U2 logo and like white out. And, you know, she was really into them and she kind of had a cool haircut, not quite the Bono, um, you know, uh, haircut that we were talking <laughs> about uh, a, a little bit there. But um, yeah, she kind of was cool. And I remember, I thought she was cool, right? And I, and I remember that uh, some of the actual cool kids of the school giving her shit uh, for liking you too, because they weren't, nobody knew who they were. They weren't a cool band at the time, like among the popular kids at my school. And there was this one uh, cool girl, she's kind of a bitch named Haley. And she tried to make this girl feel like shit about you two. Say, you two sucks. Who do you, what do you, it's not even a band. What do you like them for? You know, all that kind of stuff. And I thought it was, I mean, I, I thought it was shitty making somebody feel bad about a band they like, which was maybe a sensitive, uh, you know, spot for me. This girl, Haley, was a real, like I said, she's a real bitch. Um, and the most ironic thing ever is several years later in high school, this was in junior high, in high school, you know, a lot of these kids went to the same high school as I did, of course, as as happens. And I saw this girl, Haley, wearing a Joshua Tree uh, concert shirt. So just like a few years earlier, you know, she was just like giving this other poor girl all this grief about liking U2. And of course, Joshua Tree being the biggest album ever and U2 being the biggest band ever. She was right on that bandwagon. I'm sure conveniently forgot that she was giving this other girl, you know, a lot of uh, crap about um liking it. So I hope, Kaylee, if you're out there, I hope you've been divorced <laughs> about four times and you weigh 300 pounds, you know, screw you. That's funny. All Before right. you jump into anything else, I have to talk about this too, because that is a phenomenon that uh, uh, I could relate to a little bit. But my wife, Barb, uh, you know, she, she was what you would call a goth now, but they didn't call it that then. And she was super into like, you know, all the stuff coming out of the UK, including early YouTube. Like she was like, why don't you guys do boy? You know, cause everything else is yeah. uncool. Cause the first debut album, uh, but, but, uh, you know, she had these early YouTube records and her sister was much more of kind of a mainstream popular girl. But by the time Joshua tree comes out, her sister just took all her records, you know, like, like came and borrowed them. You know, Barb was probably into, you know, Tom Waits or some, you know, Kate Bush and stuff like that at this point. But she, she, uh, yeah, she came and borrowed all her records. Once they became popular and mainstream, it's kind of the same phenomenon. You know, I just want to say. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it is what it is. Um, I remember seeing the early videos again for like New Year's day and, and things like that. And when unforgettable fire came out, Pride obviously was getting very popular and was the main say, uh, single, and that was getting a lot of airplay on the various video shows. I didn't have MTV yet at that time, but I started. I liked that, and I don't know if I bought the tape of Unforgettable Fire. I later bought the CD, but I think I had it. I might have taped it off somebody else or something like that, and I I liked it. I got War, and I liked that album a lot. I I don't think I had Boy. I might have. But I, I definitely had War and Unforgettable Fire. And when uh, Joshua Tree came out, I got that CD and I liked it. I didn't like it as much as the earlier stuff, but I liked it. And then it just became super overplayed. And I sort of lost interest in them, not because it was overplayed, just because it was a little more of a poppy album and I was sort of moving on to other things. I did actually see them live on that tour. Oh, wow. The one and only time I saw them, yeah, at LA Sports Arena. Um, and I kind of went, I didn't really desire to go to that show that much, but I had friends who were going and included me and I was like, yeah, I'll go. And it was a good show. They're a really good live band. 
Um, and I really like when they played their older stuff, which they did. Um, you know, they played the older hits. They played Gloria, of course, they always do. And, and, and other, and I Will Follow they played. Um, and they played Pride, of course. I, I know they played Bad. I don't think they played Wire. I don't remember. I would have because that, as we'll get into, is one of my favorite songs. So they were really good, but I wasn't as into them at that point. And my journey with you two sort of follows the same, you know, arc as yours, roughly. Like, um, I I had the CD of War. I did not have Boy. Um, what's the second October. album? October, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I, I don't think it was an EP, right? No, or was but that it's... A, yeah, it's it's probably their weak one of their weaker albums. We could talk. We'll talk about yeah. that more in the history. But um, I didn't have that. Yeah. I, yeah. So um, I had I had those. I had War. I had Unforgettable Fire on CD. I had Joshua Tree, and I had uh, Octung Baby. So um, that's sort of the 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 story there. So all right. So um, yeah, that's basically the story there. Um, those are the and after uh, Octung Baby, which I also like, not really much that interests me. I, I think I had uh, Zuropa. Um, there are a few songs in there I thought were interesting. I don't think I've listened to an entire U2 album since. I've heard pieces of it. I might have listened to it on you know like in the background. But I sort of lost interest in in them, really. Um, and I think they're, I agree with you that they continue to be very experimental. And, and I'll talk about that aspect of them in my evaluation a little bit later. So why don't we move into talking about the uh, the zeitgeist of when this album came out a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so this is kind of the part of the show where we talk about not only we talk about the context of when the album came out, but we also talk about maybe some of the influences. And this is really... U2 is a tough one. I think they're really unique. I think even though they were part of what was going on, there was also uh, some differences. And I think part of this may have been because they were coming from a place, Ireland, where there wasn't just a ton of you know popular music at the time. I mean, really, they're uh, they basically put Ireland on the map. You know, there was Thin Lizzy, but you don't really hear much of Thin Lizzy at all in in U2. You know, I'm sure they were aware of them. Uh, and there were some bands like the Stiff Little Fingers and this other band called the Skids. I'm not that familiar with either of those bands, but they were they were kind of of the, the Scottish and Irish uh, punk scene. And obviously, so the so the Zeitgeist is really punk rock, but post punk. I think U2 is definitely in that post punk vein. You know, um, there are bands like Wire, which was like a you know a, an incredible band that uh, it just. Could, you know, you listen to their music now, it sounds like it could come, could have come out now. You know, it's kind of like a mixture of punk with gothic elements and, you know, kind of um, a lot of effects laden guitar. Uh, there's Joy Division, again, that the guitar, uh, you know, the kind of uh, especially Unforgettable Fire, you can hear some of that. Um, and then there's Bauhaus and, you know, some of the bands like Teardrop Explodes and Echo and the Bunnymen. Echo and the Bunnymen really remind me a lot of you, too. I think they're kind of very similar. But you know, there's also classic rock, you know, I mean, you two, you know, there's that anthemic side to them, you know, like I, I think of the song by the who love Reno or me. I mean, that could be a U2 song that the way that, that it's kind of overwrought emotion. Yeah. yeah. You don't really, or heroes by David Bowie, you know, that could be another one, right. Or some of the stuff Bruce Springsteen was doing. I don't know if you two even knew who he was or was listening, but it's that same overwrought emotion, you know, um, 
And then, of course, uh, just like as it every band was influenced by the Velvet Underground, you know, we'll talk about Bad and how influenced that, that is by the Velvet Underground. I mean, you heard at the beginning in, in the live version of Bad from Live 80s singing uh, Walk on the Wild Side, right? Uh, yeah. And so they would later cover Satellite of Love by Lou Reed. So that influence was there. Obviously, um, you know, Dylan, the, the poetry, even Jim Morrison a little bit, because Bono does have these things where he'll go into these spoken word bits. Uh, Bullet the Blue Sky, he does it. Uh, um, you know, he's got a, a lot of kind of that obscure poetry. Um, you know, more anthemic stuff, Peter Gabriel Biko. You know, that's like topically... That's about Stephen Biko, the South African uh, poet and activist. That is like right in, in U2's wheelhouse. So that was going on at this time, too. And then, of course, politics, right? U2 is an overly political band, especially around the time of war. And you have The Clash, right? They've, got a, they've had to have been an influence. There were other punk bands that were very political at this time. Uh, and as far as some other influences, you know, I have to say the police, the police were ubiquitous as far as influence at this time. And you can't think of the edge without thinking of Andy Summers. You know, he had to have been. I think there's a direct. Connection. Yeah, there's a direct connection. Subtle. Yeah. yeah, he was definitely listening to Andy Summers uh, because the guitar is so similar. Um, and then, of course, you know, Brian Eno looms large in the U2 story, especially with this album. And, uh, you know, his music and the stuff that Talking Heads were doing and um, the stuff that Robert Fripp was doing, the, the experimental guitar he was doing at this time had to have influenced The Edge uh, when he went, you know, we mentioned Heroes as well. That's a huge uh, Fripp showcase. So all of these things kind of came together to to influence you, too. And I think that that's what was going on at the time. But again, I have to, you know, looking at this, just coming up with this. I just was struck by how original they really are. You know, even though you hear some influences, I think they were kind of one of these unique bands. And that's why they kind of sat, uh, you know, it's a lot of this kind of post-punk stuff like The Cure became popular. The Cure didn't really become huge until the late 80s. You know, it kind right. of took U2 and, and same with R.E.M. You know, they were another post-punk band that became huge in the late 80s, early 90s. And it took you two, I think, to kind of shepherd those bands in. They were the first one to really break that was of this kind of music. I mean, Duran Duran, you know, they were a different thing because they had the whole image. You know, they were they were much more like, a you know, a teen band, even though musically they were really popular very early on. They're an MTV band. They're really. MTV yeah, band, whereas you yeah. two were yeah. much more. Uh, they were a combination of that rare combination of popular and critically acclaimed. That you know, the you only get with like Bruce Springsteen, the Beatles, and these kind of bands, you know, the Who, the the classic rock bands you get. But but in the eighties, it was pretty rare to have that. I think it was one or the other, you know. And so that was that was unique. Now, kind of transitioning into the history of the band, um, maybe I'll start talking about uh, about that, and you can chime in uh, too. Um, sure. So the band started out when they were really young. I mean, when they started out, Larry Mullen Jr. was like 14 years old. This was like in 1976. He's, and they, he still looked 14 through most of the, yeah, band yeah. History, you could actually. tell he was younger and he kind of has this innocence about him, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, and they started at this school. They all went to this Mount Temple comprehensive school. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously we had the edge Dave Evans, it was the original lineup was Dave Evans, who would call himself The Edge, his older brother, Dick Evans, uh, Larry Mullen Jr. on drums, Adam Clayton on bass, 
Paul Hewson, who uh, was on vocals, who would become known as Bono. Initially, he was known as Bono Vox, uh, which which is a play on Bonavox, which means good voice in Latin. And what's ironic, and this is crazy to think of because he's such an incredible singer. He actually was really bad at first, supposedly. He wasn't good. Uh, and originally the band was called the Larry Mullen Band, but very soon uh, Bono became, you know, Bono on the Edge kind of became the dominant forces in the band as probably the most talented guys in the band and just the strongest personalities. Um, they changed their name to Feedback and then the hype. And finally, um, this other uh, guy in the kind of local scene from another punk band called The Radiator, Steve Averill, gave them a list of names and they picked U2. And of course, U2 is like, uh, you know, it's a pun because you also, and obviously U2, the U2 spy plane. So it was like one of these pun names. And Bono looked, you know, has been quoted in interviews saying he thinks it's a stupid name, but then he also didn't realize that the Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S, was also one of these goofy kind of pun names. Uh, yeah. You know, but I mean, it's a unique band name. It's iconic. I think it definitely worked to their favor. Um, you know, early, they so they played and they practiced and they, uh, you know, ended up winning a talent contest that kind of exposed them to some record companies, uh, including CBS. Um, and it also got them in touch with this guy, Bill Graham, who was a writer for this mag, not that Bill Graham, not the famous uh, SF Bill, San Francisco based Bill Graham, but uh, this Irish writer who was writing the, for this uh, kind of zine slash magazine called Hot Press. And he was writing about them. And that talent contest also got them noticed by Paul McGinnis, who would become their manager. Uh, CBS Records put out a, an EP called Three, uh, which just had three songs. Um, uh, it included I Will Follow, which was kind of their first big hit. Um, that got them some notice from Island Records, who signed them, um, and uh, producer Steve Lillywhite, who would produce their first three albums, Boy, October, and War. Um, so that kind of got them started. Now, uh, they released their debut album, Boy, and it was very critically acclaimed. It's a really strong debut, I think. And it's a concept album, which is interesting about you know, being a boy growing up. Um, and uh, that got them a lot of notice around Europe. Um, and so they started touring. And while they were touring, they recorded and wrote their second album, October, which is kind of the reason I think October is one of their weaker albums. It's It was very rushed. They didn't have as much time as they did to write the stuff for Boy. Um, but it does, of course, have the iconic song, Gloria. Um, and a few other good ones. It's decent. It's it's just not maybe as strong as their later stuff. Um, and during this time, uh, from the start of the band, uh, there were three Christian members, Larry Mullen, Bono, and The Edge. And they were part of this group that was almost like a, they, they were like evangelicals in the United States called the Shalom Fellowship. And this group, um, you know, was a big part of their lives. Uh, they were very devout. And one of the members of the group had this vision that the band, that these guys needed to stop playing music. And this happened around the time of when they were uh, making October. And um, so uh, this and this was taken seriously by them. And so the one of the main lead pastors, this guy, Chris Rowe, wanted them to quit music and they seriously considered it. But then at this time, Bono realized, you know, maybe organized religion is stupid. Maybe this weird group we're in is not so great. 
So even though they were pro-Christian, they decided to kind of break with this group. Uh, but even after that, he got Chris Rowe to officiate his wedding. He married his wife, Allison, who he's still married to to this day um, around this time when they were really young. So they decided to um, you know, continue on, thankfully. Uh, they released the Gloria video, which made some waves around uh, the U.S. And, and England. And then they released War, which was an absolute smash in Europe and eventually would be number 12 on the U.S. charts. And obviously that has New Year's Day and Sunday Bloody Sunday. Um, you know, and of course, after that, Red Rocks, as we mentioned, this was a concert that was, uh, you know, filmed at the famous Red Rocks Theater, uh, by Amphitheater in Colorado, which you've been to, right? At least once. Uh, probably a dozen yeah, times. Yeah, okay. So I've never been there, yeah. but, uh, and this, this, this concert is famous for a number of reasons. One is it's an incredible performance and it kind of showcases Bono's power to, uh, influence a crowd and to kind of move a crowd. Um, but it also was like this harrowing uh, event because the weather was so, uh, it was like this huge storm and, you know, roads were closed, but the crew and the band made it up there, uh, barely making it up to the show. Uh, the show was uh, filmed during a storm and uh, there was lightning and Bono was doing stuff like climbing up the rafters and stuff. And there was, you know, very very much a danger of the band getting electrocuted <laughs> during the show. So it was one of these things that, you know, um, was quite a harrowing uh, event, but it eventually translated into this video and an EP that pretty much skyrocketed the band's popularity. I mean, I remember seeing it. I talked about it. It pretty much blew me away. I think most people who saw it were blown away by it. So right at this time when they're poised to become huge, what do they do? They um, So the band is poised uh, to be this huge success, but what do they do? They completely switch gears and they get uh, Brian Eno to um, uh, produce their next album. They decide to do a more experimental album. Um, and this is where they do Unforgettable Fire, um, and, uh, I don't know if you wanted to chime in on any of this. Yeah. I, I mean, the unforgettable fire is a reference to an art exhibit about the atomic bombing of uh, Hiroshima. Um, you know, I just right off of, uh, Wikipedia, so I don't have any particular insights here, but it was, uh, recorded in, um, started in May of 1984, starting at a Slane castle where they uh, lived and wrote and recorded. And it, it's in a, you want to see what that looks like. There's a YouTube documentary, which we played some clips from at the beginning that they show them um, recording there. And then they transitioned from the castle to um, the uh, a studio called uh, Windmill Lane Studios. Um, a lot of the recording, though, in the castles, like big, you know, ballrooms and stuff like that. Um, and you know, there is a whole kind of, uh, adventure that you can continue to talk about. But one of the things I found was interesting is the power, uh, supply for that castle was based off of, uh, of water power, hydropower. Oh, wow. I didn't know uh, that. That is really yeah, cool. And when the rain level was low, the power would, would kind of flutter and it would fuck up all the instruments. And so like the engineers were really not happy being there and they had to get like a, a diesel generator when the power was low and it would catch fire and, you know, they would always find like them smoking by it and tell them to get away from that. Like they, 
maybe not the, the brightest bulbs, but anyway, go ahead. It's kind of cool too, because I think about that, you know, like so many albums, how and where they were recorded is so much a part of their sound, right? So you have like the Rolling Stones recording Exile in Main Street, like in the south of France in a kind of dilapidated mansion. It's similar here, this uh, Slank Castle with this ballroom. I mean, it really, that kind of echoey cavernous sound is such a part of what makes this album what it is. And I think that's really cool. You know, of course, Island was mortified that they would go to Eno at this time. They, you know, Island Records was like, you guys are about to be huge and, you know, why not stick with Steve Lillywhite? Of course, Steve Lillywhite had this policy of never working with a band more than twice. He ended up working with U2 for war. So that was a third time. But they decided they wanted to do something else. You know, they were worried, I think, about becoming uh, just this kind of strident arena rock band. And it's funny, when they played Eno uh, under a blood red sky, he just thought it sucked. You know, he just had no interest in them. He didn't find them interesting because their kind of anthemic over the top thing was not what he was about. He was much more, in, in, you know, about these kind of more artsy bands. Like he worked with Bowie, he worked with uh, Talking Heads. But once he started working with them, he realized how, you know, you heard the clip at the beginning where he's talking about how even with their limitations, that was kind of what made them what they were. You know, they they weren't the most technical musicians, even the edge. I mean, he's brilliant at using effects, but he's not a virtuoso, really. No. You know, and and like Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton, and I'll talk more about this in value evaluation. You know, they're not the greatest musicians, but they have a sound and they play well together. You know, when they play there, for instance, I'll just jump ahead on this. I was going to talk about it on my evaluation, but there's this album Robbie Robertson of the band recorded that was produced by Daniel Lanois in like 1989, 1990. And U2 is the backing band on several songs. And when that band starts up, even though it's not a U2 song, you know, it's them, even just from the drums yeah. and bass, you know, it's them. And that's, is to me the the hallmark of a great band even if it's not technical they have a sound and they have ability to play off of each other that you really hear and i think eno noticed that during these sessions for sure so you know uh obviously the album comes out and it does well mainly off of the back of pride which is much more like something that would have been on war it it actually kind of is an outlier on this album i don't think it sounds like the rest of the album um but of course they toured uh, during this and that's when you started to see them play bigger, bigger venues. They, you know, they played Madison Square Garden. You know, it wasn't like the football stadiums they would play with Joshua Tree, but it was on the way there. So they started to attract a huge live following. Around this time, Rolling Stone came out with an article called, you, uh, you know, kind of christening you to the band of the 80s. Um, and uh, that was around this time. And then, of course, their iconic Live Aid performance, which we'll talk, I'll talk a little bit more about in my evaluation. But, you know, they played bad and it, it turned this kind of five minute, uh, you know, song, kind of wandering and explorative song into this absolute arena rock anthem. Uh, you know, it's like a 12 minute version where he starts improvising and, you know, it gives a lot of room and space for the crowd to participate. And it was just, you know, Along with Queen at Live Aid, U2 at Live Aid was another one of these performances where people are like talk, still talking about it to this day. Um, obviously, the rest, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about in our personal histories. You know, Joshua Tree came out, was this absolute blockbuster, still one of the biggest, probably their biggest, well, it's by far their biggest selling album. 
followed up by Rattle and Hum, which kind of saw people backlash against them, including me. Even though, you know, uh, it's generally not well looked upon there, you know, it has its moments, but it's kind of they're so steeped in that Americana that I think they kind of dug themselves into a hole a little bit. And Octung Baby represented a complete, uh, you know, shift for them and also a massive blockbuster album for them with with huge hits. Um, yeah. You know, and then the rest, as they say, is history. You know, they kind of went to become these kind of elder statesmen. You know, Bono's always inducting people into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. one of these guys who's everywhere. You know, obviously they did a lot of humanitarian efforts and stuff. Um, you know, but uh, he, he kind of became like a figure, you know, almost a self parody of, you know, right. Political correctness yeah. and activism. Exactly. And, you know, People would make jokes about what are you Bono now, you know, because he seemed to be everywhere right. all the time, like talking this, about this cause or that cause. Yeah, self-appointed savior of everybody, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I remember one of the funniest things is the whole, the whole thing with, uh, you know, Octung Baby is he kind of like try he kind of shifted into these characters, you know, he plays this character yeah. Mephisto, and it's really watching it now, it's so cringy. It just doesn't work because he can't really drop that messianic thing. Like, you know, the, the way that the, um, uh, you know, zoo station tour or whatever it was called, the tour for Octung Baby, you know, it was this multimedia, super uh, high tech stage. And he would he would come on with these devil horns and he would change the channel and he would, you know, he was trying to be ironic, but he just couldn't help but like preach to people at the same time. Because so he's like turning the channel and he's like, oh, Sarajevo, we don't want to watch that click. You know, he's got to yeah. he's got to mention Sarajevo. He's got to mention some crisis in there while trying to be ironic and satirical. It's just so it's so like blunt and and uh, plotting. You know, it's so funny. It's a little on the nose. It's on the nose. It, just, it doesn't wear. And then, of course, they tried to do a good deed in like, what, 2012 or whatever. They fucking put like their songs of innocence album on everybody's uh fucking itunes and every it was like the most hated thing ever like people were you know immediately putting up how to remove this fucking cancer from you it was just this free album they gave everybody <laughs> um you know it was kind of like meant to be this uh you know gesture kind of like what radiohead did within rainbows where they basically said you could pay whatever you want you could download it for free you could pay whatever you want but youtube just said well we're just going to push it onto your device whether you want it or not. And that caused this huge, like an STD. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and now they've been pretty quiet, you know, they haven't released an album in years and I'm not sure what they're up to now. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know if there's anything else to say about their later history. If you want to say anything. No, just, you know, kind of what I was mentioning before that I kind of left them at Octung baby. And, you know, once in a while I'd see them play or, there might be a, like a free concert on, you know, some channel and I'd watch them and I'm like, yeah, they're, they're still a good band. And I still appreciate them as a band, but my intense sort of active interest in them really did end in the early nineties with, uh, you know, the Octung baby, um, era. So why don't we talk about evaluations of them and we'll have you go first here and where you come down on this album. Yeah, you know, revisiting this album was interesting because, uh, you know, it. I kind of came full circle to feel, you know, I, I always wanted to kind of like this as a Dark Horse album for the band. You know, I always kind of wanted to say, oh, this album is so good. It's so atmospheric. It's so experimental. It's like kind of forgotten. Um, 
you know, and, but really it does come off as what it is, a transitional record that's kind of got its flaws. You know, it's, it's really not fully realized. I think there are elements of it that are amazing as we'll talk about, but I think there's stuff that doesn't work. Um, and as a whole, it feels kind of spotty, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, you know, I, I would say one thing I admire about it more than anything else, as I mentioned, is the experimentation, you know, uh, it, it really sits very similar to, for me, to Zuropa, because I feel similarly about that record. I think there are moments on that record that are absolutely brilliant, but again, not everything works. You know, a lot of it is kind of hard to listen to. And, you know, obviously the good thing about Unforgettable Fire is it comes from an era where albums were shorter. You know, the 90s, everybody wanted to expand the album to fit the CD. So Zuropa is this sprawling thing that's just way too long. Imagine they they did the same on Octung Baby, but Octung Baby never lets up in quality. Like it's good from start to finish. Um, and it, they fill out that, that, that length with... You know, you wouldn't want to take anything away from it. Whereas Zuropa, it could have been a shorter album, of forty minutes, and you could really remove some stuff that doesn't work. Um, with Unforgettable yeah. Fire, it's a proper album length, so it doesn't suffer as much from that. But it, um, it still has, uh, you know, it's very similar to Zuropa that way. I, I, I kind of root for it, but it's not. It could have been better, I think, if it had been more fully realized. Um, so. Again, I think the strongest parts of this album I like more than pretty much anything on Joshua Tree, but I think Joshua Tree is the stronger album because it is more consistent, right? It's there's I think there's more to um uh I think it works better as a cohesive record. It feels more unified whereas this record feels like something's kind of don't quite add up even though it has a consistent mood. I feel like the quality kind of you know doesn't quite work. And I'll talk about that, why that is, um, you know, I will say Joshua tree. One of the worst things is no one talks about his bullet, the blue sky, how much of a fucking ripoff of stranglehold by Ted Nugent. That song is, it's so (laughs) ironic that someone so progressive would rip off something so regressive, but you know, a great riff is a great riff and stranglehold is great. You can't really knock it. Um, so Let's talk about the weaknesses of this album first. So let's talk about the glaring, uh, you know, elephant in the room here, which is the song Elvis Presley in America. Uh, let's play that clip. I'm sorry I have to subject people to this, but here we go. Yeah, you got it. You got to get through it. Yeah, so this song is horrible. uh, Horrible. (laughs) Yeah, this song is just a meandering. Uh, song that goes nowhere. I mean, it does fit the mood of the record in a way. You know, it's got some interesting sonics. 
But Bono, you know, he does some incredible things with his voice on this record. Um, you know, I think his singing we'll talk about more on some of the other songs where it works better. But I can't stand what he does on this. You know, the lyrics don't make any sense. Um, but the the vocals where he's kind of t- trying just it, it seems like a, trying to sound weird for the sake of sounding weird to me. And it's just not a good song. It's, it's yeah, I, it doesn't really the song. I do feel like there's a lot of this kind of wandering and structureless kind of songwriting on this album. And I feel like they kind of figured out what to do with that more on Joshua Tree. Like Where the Streets Have No Name is very influenced by a lot of what's going on in this, but it works better as a as a song. And I think this one is the most meandering kind of, I mean, as a kid, I always lifted up the, I had this on vinyl as opposed to cassette and I always picked up the needle on this one. You know, I never listened yeah. to this and I tried to give it more of a chance. I tried to say, you know, let's, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I need to, you know, and, and again, I can't really think of much positive to say about it. It's, it's really, I really wish uh, that they had put this as a, you know, an extra track or something on the, on the deluxe and it wasn't part of the album and they put some other stuff on the album. Um, but the other thing is, this whole Americana obsession is where this starts, right? So Elvis Presley in America, I mean, it's very abstract lyrically. I'm not sure what he's trying to say, but it's that whole, along with the MLK stuff on here, it's kind of leading into more of that Americana that they would really uh, kind of fully come to fruition on Joshua Tree and even more on Rattle and Hum. And it's kind of the reason I don't go back to Joshua Tree because I like this as an Irish band. Like, war is Irish. You know, it's like fucking about Belfast and shit, even though there's stuff about Poland and stuff. It's a European album, whereas all this American stuff, it's like, why did they want to do this? It was almost like in order to conquer America, we have to sing about America. You know, we have to address well, America. And it's like, I just don't like that. You know, it bothers you know, me. What's, yeah, I, I get that. I, I think there's a couple weird things about that too. I just want to mention like one, when I was in, when I lived in France, that a lot of people there were sort of obsessed with the desert, the American Southwest and American Native American um, Indians, Native Americans. And it, that whole kind of geography and, and um, you know, climate and look and feel is something that just does not exist in Europe. Right. So I, I think there's an attraction and kind of like the, the national parks of that uh, part of the U.S., there's an attraction there that I think um, people have um, in Europe and maybe particularly in France. But I noticed that a lot of people would sort of be obsessed with that. So maybe that had to do with the Joshua tree, too, obviously being, you know, a desert related thing. So. Yeah, totally. Uh, so uh, moving on to other weaknesses. Now, they, they this is kind of a minor thing, and I think we might disagree a little bit on this. Um, I think. One of the things, um, one of the things uh, that, um, you know, as I mentioned, some of the songs are kind of unstructured. And I think they were trying to work towards a different kind of arena rock than songs like New Year's New Year's Day and um, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, you know, these kind of strident marches. They kind of wanted to make more of a loose kind of expansive sound. Uh, and and more unstructured. And I think two of the songs that really exemplify this are a sort of homecoming and bad. Um, and bad, you know, is kind of 
originally I was kind of like, well, this is a really original song. Where did it come from? But then I was kind of reading, I was like, you know, it's a song about drug addiction. Um, but it's very influenced by heroin. It has that same structure. So heroin by the velvet underground is a song where it kind of just doesn't have like a chorus, really like a verse chorus structure. It's kind of a build. It's kind of a slow build that keeps, uh, you know, uh, kind of climbing and climbing and bad is the same thing. And it's so influenced by that. Um, but it's one of these songs where on the record, I just don't feel like it has the power that it has live. Live bad becomes something entirely different. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of improv, you know, he does this whole thing of singing Ruby Tuesday and, you know, we saw the clip of walk on the wild side and there's another recording from rattle and hum where he does, uh, or from the rattle and hum film. I don't know if it's on the record, the rattle and hum film where he starts singing Maggie's farm by Bob Dylan, you know, it's kind of this, and then there's a lot of crowd kind of, uh, energy around bad. And I think it really works well live. And it's powerful. And I also feel like he eventually would figure out that kind of unstructured build kind of uh, song for Where the Streets Have No Name, which I think is a better version than Bad is of Bad. But Bad Live is one of their better songs. But Bad on the Studio, it's it's good. It just doesn't have the same power to me. It lacks energy. And I feel the same way about a sort of homecoming. So I want to contrast the two. Um, and I don't feel like I picked the best clip for the live part because the live part has more energy than I'm giving credit. But let's 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 do it anyway. and We could discuss it. Let's play just the opening of the studio version of a sort of homecoming. Okay, now let's contrast that with the live version from Wide Awake in America. Okay. Desire time and your earth. 
Okay. So uh, that song gets more intense as it goes on. I think I think my feeling about it is uh, there's an energy to me, to the live one, that is lacking on the studio one. Now, obviously, the guitar part is much more ornate on the studio yeah. one. Uh, like you like that better, right? I do. I I mean, the live version is okay, but but I like the song. It's one of my favorite songs off this album. I like the guitar part, the opening of the studio version a lot. I think the live version musically is more boring. But to your point, they're sort of using it as a, as a crowd build yeah. kind of energy thing, which is a, it's a different deal. I just think that they why didn't they do the guitar thing on the opening of it a little more interesting? It was just sort of like for Bono to strut around the stage and sort of get the crowd into it. It's like, eh, okay. Well, maybe they couldn't reproduce some of those effects. I mean, they did have, they did have some stuff about how they had to uh, use backing tracks for some of the songs on this record. Cause again, it's so produced, right. And those effects yeah. on the guitar, but my, my belief on the effects and, you know, obviously you disagree is I think they kind of are a little overkill because what ends up happening in the, in the studio version for me is the beginning kind of overshadows the rest of the song. You have this crazy guitar and it's kind of circular and it's, it, it, it's like the kind of weird shimmering thing of the live, the simplicity is much more like yeah. they, what they would do on Joshua tree. And again, I, I like, see that. I, again, part of it is I'm a sucker for crowd participation that adds to the song. Right. I talked yeah. about this on Cheap Trick. So I'm wondering if this is actually studio trickery as well. You know, maybe they those chants that really take over the song in the live version. Um, yeah. Uh, it's Brian Eno. Right. And, uh, well, it, well, no, yeah. Did, Brian, did they get, uh, you know, uh, Eddie Kramer in, and you know, to put yeah. those in? You know, it's like, deuce, yeah. it's like that crowd noise to me, really. The energy, it's almost like the, it, it's not as dramatic as I want you to want me, but it's similar for me. Like when I hear the live version, even the that kind of simple guitar part, the kind of it's almost like spectral. Like it, I get chills down my spine. Like, and I, it's part yeah. of it's the video because you can see the video is a document of them getting bigger. You know, it's the yeah. video is a document of them touring and like kind of their power they have live. And I just want to say a tangent: what the fuck is up with the one of the greatest live bands of all time not having a fucking proper live album? They have all these weird yeah. kind of half-assed live albums. So they have Wide Awake in America, which has this and bad, which I love. Um, and But it's only two songs live. And then they have, uh, you know, Under a Blood Red Sky, which should have been a full live album. It's like eight songs. It's an EP. Then they have Rattle and Hum, half of which is studio. It's like, what the fuck? You know, it's like, yeah, this is like one weird. of the greatest live bands that ever existed. And they don't actually have a proper live album. But anyway, that's a tangent. But um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, I think you're to your point. I agree with you about the opening guitar. It's really interesting. I just have always gravitated toward this version because I just feel like there's a a, a directness that I like, uh, which is kind of counter to this album, right? This album is much more about kind of, you know, a more kind of um, circular, you know, winding sound. You know, there's a lot of guitar effects that kind of, uh, you know, give it more of an abstract sound. And um, but again it's a minor quibble because I do like the studio version of this song as well. Now, yep. uh, the other thing I'll say is a weakness, which is kind of, I get why they did this, you know, in the U2 unforgettable fire short documentary, we mentioned, you can hear them rehearsing the three sunrises and the three sunrises is like top 10 song for me by U2. I absolutely love it. It's much more like, uh, 
you know, it's much more of that anthemic kind of sound. It's not like the rest of this album. And I can see why they left it off. But man, I've always thought it just would be so great instead of Elvis Presley in America coming on, have this fucking come on on the album. Even though it, you know, it, it's it's kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. And I get that's why they didn't put it in. But let's listen to it. I mean, that's a sound. It sounds right off of war. Yeah, it's got that more kind of, again, it's what they were trying to get away from. But it's like, I love the harmonies. There's a, in that documentary, as I mentioned, they're rehearsing the harmonies and it's just the edge and Bono singing. And it sounds so fucking good. Like, it's like, I just love the harmonies. I always, they played, started playing this song on the radio when Wide Awake in America came out. Cause that came out about a year after this and people were really wanting more U2. So they played that. And then another song on this, Love Comes Tumbling, which I also love. Uh, Love Comes Tumbling might fit better into this. It kind of sounds more like something that maybe would have come off of uh, Joshua Tree. You know, it's kind of, you got both sides here, things that don't quite fit the record. You know, as much as I hate to say it, Elvis Presley in America kind of fits more, but I just don't like it. So I wanted, I always, as a kid, I was like, fuck, you withheld the two of the best songs on the record. These could have been hit singles too. I mean, they're both super catchy. Um, but again, I think they were going for something else. But again, I just have to say song for song, I would have rather have had these two on. But I have to admit, it doesn't fit the mood. So about yeah. uh, the, the strengths, uh, going into the strengths. Uh, OK, my favorite song on the album is the title cut. Uh, I absolutely love this song. This to me is the quintessential song on this record. And it, I think it nails what they were trying to do more than anything else. Um, so play that. Great song. This is as goth as they ever got. I mean, and I have to say, it it gets everything right. So the atmosphere that Eno creates helps to create is great. Um, and Bono's vocals here are just amazing. Some of my favorite singing he ever did. You know, he, he, he's he's doing that same thing he does on Elvis Presley in America, but here it all works. You know, he's hitting high notes, and it's just he's just it's just so dynamic and and incredible. Um, so you have like something that's anthemic, but is also atmospheric, 
you know, so I think this is the perfect balance they were trying to capture. Um, another song, which I think you're going to go more into, that's uh, a contender for the best song on the album as well is Wire. Um, yeah. That is a song where they use effects and it's, again, it rocks. It's much more like the the heaviness of war, but it doesn't sound like war. It's new, right? right? They're doing all this stuff with effects. So I'll let you, we'll talk more about Wire when we do your evaluation, because I know you, that's that's your big, uh, one of your big favorites. Um, yep. And I think that's strong. Of course, Pride is great. You know, you can't uh, really deny it, but it's one of those I'm just sick of. You know, I've just heard it too much. Uh, you know, I when I would come on, I would kind of skip it because I wasn't as interested in exploring it. I'm just too familiar with it. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's a great song. But to me, it actually, you know, if they were going to put Pride on, they might as well have put Three Sunrises on because Pride doesn't really fit this album either. Thematically, it does. But sonically, it sounds much more like war. You know, it's even got that that chugga chugga kind of staccato guitar playing that's much more characteristic of war than the kind of more delay ridden sort of homecoming and wire sound that you have on this record. Um, So to me, it's actually a weakness in a way, but it's a great song and it's one of their iconic songs. You can't deny it. And um, maybe their most, you know, it's kind of their most and Bono's vocals again are outstanding on this song. I mean, he sings the fucking shit out of this thing. Um, and they even have a scene in the documentary where Eno is speechless, you know, when Bono's just going off and they, and Daniel Lenoir kind of dryly says, I think you should use more emotion on this next cut, you know, which is a joke because obviously he's giving it all he has, you know, um, uh, Indian summer sky. I'll mention, I think you're going to talk more about that. That's another good one. Uh, that is kind of similar to wire and it has like, uh, a lot of the same atmosphere, the dark kind of gothic atmosphere. And I do like the little vignettes, uh, Promenade, MLK, 4th of July. I think they work to kind of help uh, form the atmosphere of the album. I don't mind them at all. And so, you know, the only real stinker is Elvis Presley in America. I generally like most of the album, even though, again, I like some of the live versions more. And I think they capture it more. It's like, they, you know, the album is works on those levels for me other than Elvis Presley in America. Uh, so my evaluation is, look, I'm long on U2. I think going short on U2 is ridiculous. Uh, on this album, I'm slightly long because I think, again, it speaks to their, I think there's enough classics on here, like Bad, even though it's not in its classic form, which is its live form. Bad, um, Wire, um, Unforgettable Fire, uh, pride, you know, there's enough classics on here to go slightly long on this, but I do feel like it's, it's more interesting as a historical point in time where U2 was transitioning to be the, what they would eventually become with Joshua tree and beyond. Right. And I also think it is the first time we see how experimental they were willing to be, even though there's really war, you can't, there's some experimental stuff on war too, like seconds and drowning man are really interesting uh, experimental songs. There's a lot to recommend that in between all the anthems. Um, but this album really was like a very self-conscious effort to do something new and to break away, kind of maybe break away from the imminent popularity for a, take a breather and see what else can we explore before we become the biggest band of the world. So I think it's, I'm slightly long on this record because of that. I think it will stand the test of time. So that's it for me. 
All right. So my evaluation, and, and, and I come down a little different, maybe a ridiculous place, but I'll, I'll try to defend that. So um, overall, I agree with you. The sound of this album is really compelling. It was different um, for me hearing it at the time. You know, I, I wasn't, you could say, well, similar to other experimental things that were done or the vein of it being experimental and things like, well, Brian Eno's old band and Roxy Music and things like that. But I hadn't heard that at the point where I heard this album. Obviously, that came later for me, and we'll certainly get into that band at some point. Um, I want to just call out one of the most underrated parts of U2 as a band and this album, too, which are the Edge's background vocals. Oh, yeah. You were mentioning um, the live album, Red Rocks, and all that stuff. Anytime you hear them play live, and the the Edge, you can hear his background vocals. They're, they're they're prominent. They don't feature him on camera a lot. You you don't see him a lot. He's kind of more of a of a background character. You know, Bono obviously overshadowing yes. the rest of the band. But he's a really a talented singer, and his background vocals on this album in particular, I think, are really really strong. All their albums, honestly, and live even more so. So, you know, um, I would put him in the category of people like Brian May of Queen. Uh, Michael Anthony of Van Halen, um, for sure. Michael Anthony, you know where yeah. where they yeah. where these guys are. Uh, well, Michael Anthony is actually a much better singer than David Laroth ever could be. But you know these guys are Chris Squire of Yes. You know where these guys are right. just as good of a singer technically in a way, even though Bono is much more dynamic. You know, and he's much more of yep. the front man. The Edge is great. He sings the song Seconds on War. And he's great on it. You know, he's yeah. one of the best kind of background vocalists, I think, around. And I didn't think about that until you, you know, I kind of noticed you'd put that down. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally true. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just enhances the songs a lot. And a lot of times you'll hear on songs, you're like, well, did they just double or is Bono singing background with himself in the studio? A lot of times that's not the case. It's actually the edge. And when you hear them see them live, you see that that's the case. So that's really... Um, that's really important in, in my estimation. I love the guitars and the ambiance and the delays and the effects. And, and these weren't new things. I, I mean, using guitar effects in interesting ways. You mentioned Robert Fripp earlier. Certainly he was doing that. David Gilmore, Pink Floyd certainly was doing that right. to, the, to the max. Um, but it works well and it works in a unique way. When you hear the edge, you know it's the edge. And so he did sort of developed his own sound with all that. And Brian Eno had a big part in helping him find his sound there maybe, but it is the edge and driving that and continues uh, to this day. Right. I want to talk about the bass sound on this album a little bit. I agree with you. Um, Adam Clayton, not the greatest bassist in the world, but he's solid and good and fine. Um, I do like that. He played those jazz, uh, you know, Fender jazz uh, basses and P basses and stuff that big, heavy uh, sound that you hear a lot live too, by the way, at Red Rocks, who's really prominent. You know, he overdoes the slapping a little bit at times, you know, but I, I do think it's a big part of the album and, and the way it was recorded um, makes a big, uh, you know, part of their sound. And I'll talk about that more in a minute when we play a couple of clips. You know, what's interesting um, about him too, I should say, is that later in the 90s, he actually started taking bass lessons which I really respect because yeah. this is a guy yeah. who's like one of the, probably the biggest bassist in the world, you know, if not the best, yeah. he was, he was in the most popular band and he didn't have to do that. You know, he, he, right. he could have just kind of coasted, but he felt like, you know, I really need to learn more. And I kind of respect yeah. that. Again, their yeah. limitations, Brian, 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 Eno talks about their limitations and they use them well, like same with Larry Mullen Jr. Again, 
he's not going to uh, beat Billy Cobham in a drum off. But, you know, the guy is distinctive and he has interesting parts. And on this album, I think he really shines, too. But I think, yeah, Adam Clayton is often the forgotten member. But that rhythm section is key to, you know, providing the foundation for the edge and Bono to be looser. You know, they're so rock solid, you know. I agree. I think Adam Clayton, where he went wrong, is he ditched the blonde pro. <laughs> yeah, so he, he, I, he, yeah, he was cooler than man. I mean, there's scenes of him in this documentary. He's got these glasses, and he looks like an early '80s computer programmer or something. He really yeah. doesn't fit in with the rest of the band. He looks like uh, you know Chick Corea from that era. Yeah, totally. Know, kind of with totally blonde, with blonde hair. Yeah. Um, so I think he ditched the blonde fro. He he lost some of his mojo. So Adam, if you're out there, I know. He, he, uh, you could go back to dyeing the hair. Uh, you, you still have it, so you should rock that, dude. Um, I, I think this album, they just one of the things I respect a lot about it is they decided to try to be a different band when it was, as you highlighted, a risky to do so, maybe even right. Yeah, they were on a trajectory absolutely. where the, it wasn't necessarily the obvious thing to do. They weren't trying to do something to save the band, or you know, to they weren't on the out side out in trying to like bet all the the chips on this one thing they were exploding and to do this was was pretty ballsy and it and it worked and to what you were talking about you can see elements of what came before in the war album and then what came after in joshua tree so it is very much a transitional album but in the best possible ways and you can see them growing you can see them trying new things and this sort of diversion, if you would, into this more experimental land stuck with them to this day and all yeah, the subsequent things. And so true. that was really influential, um, you know, to, to talk about there. And before I go into talking about some of the songs, I, I want to sort of talk a little bit about why this album, right? So, you know, Slip was mentioning, well, War was maybe his favorite album, right? And that even maybe a better album and Joshua Tree, a bigger album. Um, certainly their biggest, one of the biggest albums, well, in rock history, for sure. This album, though, I thought was interesting because it was them becoming, Yeah. right? Like, I I really wanted to explore the idea of a band that was went from being on the, on, a, on the rise to just really hitting that exponential curve, which happened with the Red Rocks thing, which happened with this album. And I just find that a fascinating place. You know, you know the four lads from, uh, well, as Casey Kasem said, England, Casey's an idiot, uh, but funny. Uh, by the way, as an aside, there's lots of very hilarious. Who gives a diddly shit? <laughs> Who gives a diddly shit? <laughs> Casey Casey. Yeah. Anyway, these four guys from Ireland who were already on the rise, and this album, you know, just accelerated that. Um, and I'm sort of fascinated by that and exploring that idea. Also, it so, started the partnership with Eno and Lanois, right? Which was huge, right? right? That was their most. Uh, their biggest period was all characterized by working with those two. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Brian Eno is just kind of, if you watched a documentary and we'll put this in the show notes, he's sort of an interesting character. You know, he sort of seems like above the fray a little bit with them and sort of like, yeah, I'm kind of a part, but I'm kind of part of them. And he kind of floats in and out. And if you read about the, the, I mean, not in terms of his influence, but in terms of like his sort of like, being a member of the band or like a right. fifth or sixth member right. of the band. Um, obviously he was very prominent before U2 was in, in, uh, in a huge band like Roxy music and, in other areas, um, other influences and other artists that he had worked with. But 
Um, you mentioned Bowie as, as one, but one of the things about Brian Eno too, that I, I think is being a little bit of an elder statesman is it helped them. Um, they were very young, they were very raw and having somebody with that kind of authority and somebody that they respected sort of telling them stuff was probably a good thing for them as they were probably getting a little big for their britches as they were getting popular. It's true. That's a good story. point. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to play a few clips here of uh, just two songs that you've played a bunch and I, I chimed in on those. I want to play what I think is the best song on this album, arguably. I like Unforgettable Fire too. Um, but it's a song called Wire and I, I'll play a little clip from it now. I just love that song. I, I think it's it's such a rocking song. It has that interesting gu uh, guitar delay thing in it. I think, you know, Bono sings the shit out of this song too. I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, this is not only my favorite song on this album. I think it's one of my favorite U2 songs ever. Yeah, it's a, it's be one honest. of the best songs. I think the, the thing about the delay is he's actually not playing as many notes. It makes it sound like he's playing so many notes, but those the delay is playing those notes. So it's yeah. so perfectly coordinated that it forms its own rhythm. It's like incredible. It's absolutely incredible guitar playing, in my opinion. And it really represents the start of something that The Edge would do and sort of push, certainly on Octung Baby. He really took it to the next level yes. with a lot of this stuff. Um, I, I love it. I'm not like a huge kind of crazy uh, guitar effects guy. I'm much more traditional, you know, Jimmy Page kind of rock yeah. stuff. but. Um, I, I love Gilmore, as we'll get into. Obviously, he's one of my favorite guitarists ever. But I, I thought this was the song represents the best of that kind of experimental thing to me. Um, lyrically, which the song I, I'm not gonna say is like the most amazing lyrics, but I always thought the interest, the uh, the intro lyric was um, the actual lyric. By the way, is innocence and in a sense, I am. Right. Right. And I always thought it was innocence and innocent, I am. And I thought that was actually a more interesting lyric. And I just learned in doing the research for this that I had it wrong all these years. So that's fine. We could do a whole show on misheard lyrics. I know. Like, it's, like, it's, it's a common phenomenon. And these lyrics yeah. are very abstract. Like the whole album, except for maybe Pride, uh, is yep. is kind of abstract. You know, it's, it's I don't know. I, I, I like the way they sound. Uh, especially yep. on this song, I think rhythmically it works. And I think the melody of this song, we got to talk about that too, because the bridge and everything and the chorus on this song are amazing. Like it's, it's much less unstructured. It's much more structured than a lot of the songs on the record. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of more in the way that pride is structured. It's, it's very structured, but it's melodically so, uh, you know, rich and it's, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a contender between that and Unforgettable Fire, which I think is another great song that's very structured. It those two are my favorite by far, and I it, you know they trade places 
between each other for being my favorite song. The bass uh, sound on this song is just so fat and just like, he's just like riding that E string, uh, low E string, just like knocking the shit out of it. I, yeah. I love it. Um, it's, it's just yeah, the bass really is well. really good on that song. It's thumping. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's yeah, kind of it funky, but not in a way that's showy. Like it just anchors the song. Minor slapping of that yeah. low uh, E string, as I, as I said. So um, the other uh, song I want to talk about is Indian Summer. Now, listen, I'm going to play a clip of that, and I want to talk about this. Great song. I, I love that. The bass is even more slapped. I mean, it's like as sloppy as you can get. One interesting thing about this is to me, these sound like almost the same song. Um, I, I want to do something weird here and I want to play both of these together and see if I just check this out. I mean, yeah. you can kind of, I kind of messed up the timing a little bit if I played around with it. You can almost, it almost sounds like one song. Yeah, we need to get Bill McClintock into here, dude. And yeah. <laughs> we need to get the master yeah. of mashups. In. But yeah, that oh, was yeah. pretty cool because it is rhythmically so the same tempo and everything. And it's got some of the same uh, chord progressions even uh, a little bit. And the same guitar sound yeah. and the same kind of bass sound. And so... I love both songs. I like the wire more, but I just, it, it almost seems like the, the, the same uh, song. I, I think that the unforgettable fire, if all the songs were sort of that intense experimental sound, but like rocking sounds like yeah. this would have been a totally different album, but it would have been great yeah. too. Like, like this represents these two songs represent, I think um, the direction that they could have gone. And they did a little bit, obviously that, would have been a really great thing too, because you know they have so much talent. And the songs were so good, so they, they aren't as ethereal and they're not as sort of moody and gothic as you said. But they are experimental in the guitar sounds and the, and how they went about it in a very rocking kind of war true tempo. Very right? true. Yes. So um, I like that. I like the more ethereal stuff too. But I, but I do like these songs as well, and you know they're a really good band. Um, okay, so evaluations and all that i want to talk about because i would say back in the day i would say i was a much bigger you mentioned the talking heads earlier right i was a much bigger u2 fan than a talking head fan although i like both and now um i would say i'm a much much bigger talking heads fan than a, than a u2 fan and i'm sure we'll get into um yeah. talking heads in a future episode some, at but, some point um, sure at some point the other band you mentioned of this era that I also love that has similar guitars as The Police, one of my favorite bands of all time, not even close. I, I mean, they're top, maybe a top five band, top 10 for sure for me. I love The Police. Um, Before you- top 10. Yeah, I think yeah. The, what's interesting about The Police is something I forgot to mention that I meant to is this album, It there's a parallel there, I think, between 
Unforgettable Fire is to Ghost in the Machine as Joshua Tree is to Synchronicity. I think it's very similar. Yeah. Un- Ghost in the Machine is my favorite police album by far. I love it. But it's the most experimental one. And yep. it's it's the first time they started experimenting with different sounds. And, and uh, that sound formed the basis of what some of the stuff they would do on their much more commercial synchronicity, their breakthrough. So it's similar, right? You have Unforgettable yep. Fire that's much more artsy than Joshua Tree, but it also lays the foundation for some of the sounds they would use on that album. So it's very similar parallels. And I almost wonder if they thought that because Ghost of the Machine, even though it has every little thing she does is magic, which is like a total pop hit, you know, it's the rest of the album is really dark and weird. And, you know, it's like, there's a lot of sonic experimentation, a lot more keyboards, for instance. So I almost yeah. wonder if they were listening to that. Cause we know the edge was listening to Andy Summers. We already established that. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, it's a good question. And, and that is, I never thought about that, but that's a, a very good um, parallel um, that you bring up an analogy there that it works. Um, anyway, so evaluation. So you said it'd be crazy to go short on YouTube, but maybe I'm a, I, I'm a little bit crazy here. I, I'm actually going to go slightly short on uh, YouTube, both as a band and this album from a valuation standpoint. And let me explain. I really like U2 as a band, obviously, and I I mentioned how much I like them. I have a lot of respect for them um, for a lot of reasons. One, because of things like going experimental at a time when it would be really easy not to, taking risks at a time when it would be really easy not to, and they did. Um, They were always trying new things, and even when some of those things may not work out well, like the song Lemon, but that's a whole other Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, but they tried to do different stuff, and I, I uh, res- respect that. I think, to your point, it's a little foolish or ridiculous to go short on a band with the kind of um, you know legacy and popularity that they enjoy even to this day. But in a way, that's kind of the point of you know CFX, which is we're trying to predict where things will stand maybe forty years from now. You know, talking this album is almost forty years ago, right? So um, I think. Over time, with bands like this, the cultural and social influence of the bands wane, you know, because you get into completely different eras. You're talking about different generations of people. And I do think that the the music, and there's exceptions to this, obviously, like the Beatles and things like that. But um, I, I do think that that will wane a little bit. And I think that the, the evaluation will basically come down to their music. And I do think that they have a lot of great music and don't get me wrong, they have much more um, to stand on than many other bands. But when I li- went back and listened to this um, album in particular, in my mind, I thought it, from remembering it from a while ago, it was much better than it actually was. There, there were those songs that I loved that we talked about, but there's like, you know, the Elvis Presley in America, some of the other stuff was like, yes, it's okay. But I had built it up more in my mind than maybe I had remembered. And so when I listened to it again recently, I was like, yeah, it's really good, but it wasn't as good as I thought. And I kind of think that that's a little maybe true with U2 overall compared to how much sort of commercial, you know, even somewhat critical acclaim they got at their height. I'm not sure that for 30, 40 years from now, that the bulk of their work will reach those heights. It'll reach a high height, but maybe not to the degree that they were like the hugest, greatest band in the world, just like a good band of that time kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so 
again, I'm not short of them because I don't like them or I, I love them, but I just don't think they're going to wind up in the in the final analyses decades from now being considered at the height of the height of, you know, where they reached in a popular sense. So that's why I'm going slightly short from a valuation point of view, but not from necessarily an esteem point of view or how much I like their you know, the favorite stuff that I mentioned. So Yeah, I see your point with that. And the other thing that might lend itself more to a short is their legacy after all this, right? So after Octon yeah. Baby and maybe Zeropa a little bit, but after all that, they really peter out. You know, some people yeah. really like all that you can't leave behind. I personally, like I said, just it doesn't do anything for me. Beautiful Day stands out, but it's almost like them trying to recapture that anthemic uh, nature of their early stuff after all this kind of yeah. weird, uh, you know, cynical kind of experiment, you know, some of the stuff in the, like the pop stuff in the nineties just really ages poorly. Um, at the time it was received poorly too, but, but it's like, you know, and then you listen to like how to dismantle an atomic bomb and songs of innocence and experience. They, they just really don't resonate at all. I mean, that's, that's true of most bands, right? Their later stuff just doesn't resonate, but I think they kind of peter out and, you know, you're kind of left with what, you know, so I, I get, I get your point. I just think overall for me, uh, you know, you listen to stuff like even the critically acclaimed shit, like Radiohead wouldn't exist without you too. I mean, there's so yeah. people, people talked about how groundbreaking that was. And I'm, I listen to that. And I'm like, this sounds like you too, with more prog rock influences, or maybe, you know, uh, you know, a, a slight, you know, maybe a more electronic dance influences, but they're pretty much really influenced by you too. You know, they're, it's right. co so crazy. A lot of hipsters would like them and not like you too, but, and then of course, you know, the rattle and hum stuff, that, that part of it, that kind of overkill kind of lends itself to maybe a short as well. You know, the kind of, uh, you know, kind of Messiah complex shit that Bono did and all the Americana stuff. But I don't know. I still come on long a little bit, but I get your point for sure. Yeah. All right, so that will wrap up episode 13 of the Cultural Futures Exchange, Unforgettable Fire. Uh, it's been fun, and we will uh, visit you next time with um, a very special episode. We think we already know what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, we're going we're gonna to try to get experimental like Brian Eno in the next episode and do some new things uh, on CFX. So, uh well, hopefully we won't, it. it won't be our Elvis Presley in America. <laughs> this, that might be this episode, but maybe, maybe that episode will, you know, will come through with a wire or, you know, yeah, uh, unforgettable yeah. fire. Time will tell. Yeah. So anyway, I, uh, signing off, I'm Jeff and that's Slip. And here we go with our outro. See you next time. Mm -hmm.